Hi, I'm Lex Marinos, and... Hello, I'm Patricia Ramflett. You're listening to Baby Boomer's Guide to Life in the 21st Century, across Australia on the Community Radio Network. Each week we chat with leading health, lifestyle, finance and fitness experts about how to get the most out of life as we age. Plus we talk with well-known and not-so-well-known Australians of all generations about the issues that affect them. So tune in and... Get connected. connected. Stay connected. You're listening to Baby Boomer's Guide to Life in the 21st Century with me, Lex Marinos. And I'm Patricia Amphlett. G'day, Lex. G'day, Patty. And what a show we have today where we're talking about vision and eye health with Dr. Con Petzoglou. Oh, he sounds Greek. He is Greek, and that's why I know so much about eye health. He has a wonderful reputation as being an excellent expert on vision and eye health. And uh, Nostalgia Town, Paddy, who's taking us there? Ah, this is my man. (laughs) Reverend Bill Cruz, I think, is everybody's man. He's a wonderful human being who's worked tirelessly for the homeless, disadvantaged people, and uh, it'll be just a joy to speak with Reverend Bill Cruz. Now, Patricia, have you got a financial plan? No. Well, you need one. You need to know how to create one and how to review it, and Rachel Waterhouse is going to tell us how to do that. Well, that'll be terrific information we could all listen to. And Vicky Cousins, 5RPH, will be taking us on a little stepping out mission today. Oh, that sounds good. All of that in today's episode of Baby Boomer's Guide to Life in the 21st Century. Today we're going to talk about eye health and our very special guest is Dr. Con Petzaglou, who is an ophthalmologist and medical director of the New South Wales Tissue Bank overseeing cornea transplants. He is also a senior lecturer at the University of Sydney and University of New South Wales. Dr. Con consults at the Sydney Eye Hospital, Barrel District Hospital and in private practice around Sydney and Barrel Welcome to you, Dr. Con. I hope you don't mind us calling you that. No, that's wonderful. Thank you, Patricia. Thank you for the invitation. Can we start with the most serious eye complaints? Most of our audience by now will be seniors or getting towards being seniors, and uh, they'll be very interested to know what are the eye conditions that can lead to blindness, and are seniors more prone to these? Look, that's a really important question, Patricia. As eye doctors and eye specialists, there are really three main conditions that we worry about as we get older. Um, And by older, I mean anyone over 50. So the three conditions people may have heard about are cataracts. The second one is glaucoma, which is a very common condition as we get older. The best way to think of it is that the eyeball has a nerve that connects the eyeball to the brain. That nerve is what we call the optic nerve, and essentially it's a really complicated cable. Now, what happens in glaucoma is that the eyeball pressure starts getting very high and damages that cable. So the information from the eye can't get to the brain. And so for glaucoma, patients every year need to have a checkup of eye pressure and make sure it's within the normal range. If it starts getting high, it can cause damage, And then that needs to be treated, usually with eye drops or surgery. And the third one is macular degeneration. Now, in terms of macular degeneration, which is probably the condition we fear most as we get older, the macula is the middle part of our eye. 
It's the part that sees, and it's like the sort of screen, like your TV screen. And unfortunately, macular degeneration, it's as if you get your fist and smash the middle of the TV screen and you lose that middle area. Mm-hmm. And that's what macular degeneration does. It causes an aging in the middle of our vision. So we m- miss all the details of the middle of our eye. And so that can happen slowly over many years. Most patients with macular degeneration require tablets like supplements, vitamin supplements are really important and regular eye checks. But if it really suddenly gets very bad, that's because of bleeding or swelling at the back of the eye. And patients uh, start noticing a change in their vision and they need to have injections to actually treat that. So these affect different parts of the eye and they each have an impact and can affect people in different ways. Are they all fixable? The good news these days, thankfully, we've got wonderful medicines and surgeries to fix, all, essentially fix all of them and keep them under control. That's great. And really the important thing is for people to get regular eye checks to find the condition before it can cause more damage. Mm. And that's particularly important for the macular degeneration because a lot of your listeners would be having regular visits to their eye doctors and been getting medicines and injections for that. Cornea transplant, it sounds serious. It sounds like, oh, an eye transplant. What does that involve? Yes. Is that, it seems like it's amazing technology and science to be able to do that. What does it actually involve? So cornea transplantation, Lex, the amazing thing is that a cornea transplant was the first successful human-to-human transplant ever. And your uh, listeners may be amazed to hear that it was actually first done in 1905. Really? So that was actually the first successful ever transplant. And that was done in Europe. And so, and it was after that cornea transplant that we started learning about transplant medicine. Um, a transplant these days involves someone passing away and, and, and expressing the wish that they want their eyes to be donated to give the gift of sight to another person. And then I work with the New South Wales Tissue Bank, which is part of the New South Wales Lions Eye Bank. And that organization has got 25 exceptional people that actually work with families and the people who wish to donate once a person has passed away to actually collect the eyes. We take them to the eye bank here at the eye hospital and we're allowed to keep them for a month. And then we can give them to surgeons that can do surgery. Now, a cornea transplant itself, essentially the way we sort of describe to our patients, the cornea is the clear front window at the front of our eyes. It's like when you wear a pair of glasses, the clear lens, it's the protective layer. And what we're doing, we're just replacing that window. So it's a bit like changing the windscreen of your car. So a person who's got damage to their eyes, their cornea, has got a scarred, yucky windscreen. We take that out and put a new, clear, donated windscreen in place. Dr. Khan, can any cornea be replaced into somebody else or is it as specific as other parts of the body need to be? That's an excellent question. Any person can donate and put into any patient. The eyes Ah. are actually quite unique. It will accept any match. And, and for most people, 95% of these transplants will work and give them wonderful vision for the next sort of 10, 15 years. So, of course, you'd be encouraging us all to leave our corneas and give someone else the, the gift of sight. Correct. I mean, the gift of sight is a really important opportunity for people 
at the time when it's really difficult when you're thinking about end-of-life decisions, but it is a wonderful gift that really brings so much really joy and happiness to families, mm-hmm. knowing that someone has actually received that gift and seeing again. I mean, one of the amazing stories we had a couple of weeks or a couple of months ago, one of the patients who donated, she was a children's author, and it just happened her cornea went into a young child and her family was mm-hmm. so, so really enamored and, and and happy to think that this young child has just received the cornea transfer and will be reading the books that the children's author that actually had um, had authored. Oh. And so it, it's a wonderful opportunity to give that gift. How rewarding for you all. It is, it is. What role does hereditary play in eye degeneration? Yeah, that's, that's a really good, good. Hereditary diseases, ones that will cause weakness to a person's vision from really young childbirth and a young age, but can happen at any time during your life. For instance, macular degeneration, that's a very, and glaucoma, which were the two initial diseases we talked about, macular degeneration and glaucoma. Mm. Both of those are very hereditary. So if your mum or dad has glaucoma, and they're usually treated with eye drops or have macular degeneration and getting injections, there is a higher chance that you will get it as mm-hmm. you get older. So everyone, so everyone who has those diseases, their kids need to be checked from 50 years of age. Um, mm-hmm. And so there's a higher chance. There are other diseases, Lex, that um, you know, kids can be born blind or have hereditary diseases. And in Sydney now, we're starting gene therapy treatments. So people may have heard about gene therapy treatments. That is that a person's got a hereditary disease. They've inherited a gene defect. And now we're beginning to put in correct genes to replace bad genes to allow people to see again. So, yeah, that's the exciting things that are happening at the moment. Do we look after our eyes well enough or do we take for granted? Exactly. I think we all take our eyes for granted. I mean, realistically, our society, our day-to-day is so visual. I mean, we're on screens all the time. Every part of what we learn, what we enjoy about life is using our eyes. I mean, our brain is 50% geared up to see. Half of our brains are just always looking around and perceiving the world. And those eyes, we sort of don't really appreciate how important they are. So we sort of really neglect them. And during COVID, when people have been sort of in lockdowns, in isolation, we've been, you know, using a lot more screens, a lot more devices, people have noticed that their eyes are getting drier, more tired, more headaches. Young children who are doing more screens, their eyes are growing bigger and longer and getting what we call short-sighted. So we're seeing impact of that in young kids. So, you know, we are taking it for granted and there are important sort of just day-to-day things people can do to just make sure that their eyes stay healthy and stay good for life. What are those things? Yeah, so I mean, I think the, I mean, what, the important thing, number one, everyone over the age of 40 needs to have a, an eye check and that eye check can be with your local optometrist And thankfully, we've got wonderful optometry practices throughout all cities, rural areas, or an eye specialist to check your eyes once a year. The other thing is when we're using screens, Lex, and I'm looking at my screen now, and I can feel my eyes are getting a bit dry. Yeah, absolutely. So whenever you're using a screen or your mobile phone, you can use it for 20 minutes, and then you have to stop. 20 second break and look away. Wow. Look at, you know, look out a window. Blink a couple of times to really refresh the surface of your eye, to re- to relieve the strain. The other important thing for patients, all of us as we get older, we need good diets. So good, healthy olive oil and fish and colorful vegetables really 
nourish the eyes a lot. And so it's the oily things and the colorful things that really help eye health. And then uh, it's just talking about it and letting people know in your family, if you've got an eye problem, let other people know so that they can get their eye checks. And the last thing, because we live in Australia, sunglasses. So sunglasses are really important and they need to be wrapped around. We didn't have much of a summer this year, but we really need sunglasses to protect all the surface of the eye. Are we wearing glasses earlier nowadays? Are teenagers, is, is that as a result of too much screen? Are people needing glasses earlier than we used to need them? We are. So the proportion of people that are needing glasses in childhood is going up in Australia. I mean, if we compare ourselves with some of the overseas countries, particularly in Asia, if you, like for instance in Singapore, more than 70% of young children need glasses. Wow. In Australia, it's about 15%, but it's going mm. up. And it is mm. because our world is up close. We're using screens and that's giving signals to the eye to keep growing. Mm. So we are using glasses earlier. And to help people with young kids, they need to talk about to the kids, limit screen time, get them to play in the parks, lots of sun and lots of outdoor activities as much as they can. And that will help that. And just like our mums and nanas said, eat your carrots. Correct. Eat your carrots. <laughs> Colourful veggies because that's, that, that's all the, the nutrients that protect the eye and, and help it protect as we get older. Mm. And that's really important for macular degeneration. So, you know, carrots and, and the sort of colourful veggies, all the fish and oils to protect the macula. I understand that, that some sections of our communities, and I'm thinking notably, I suppose, of Indigenous communities, yes. have higher rates of, of certain of glaucoma, I think, certainly. Yeah. Yeah. What can be done about that? Is, is that an education thing or is that a predisposed condition? Yeah, look, that's a really, really important question. So Indigenous eye health is something on the sort of agenda for all eye specialists and all eye health professionals in the government. The sad statistic is, Lex, that Indigenous patients have three times the rate of blindness than anyone oh. else in the community. Oh, and it's mm. terrible. And over the last 20 years, the, the rate of blindness in the community has actually gotten less. Even though we've got an uh, aging population, there are less people getting blind because they're being treated. But unfortunately, the Indigenous population, because of a lot of factors, they're not getting the treatments, they're not able to see professionals, and culturally, they don't interact well with professionals. They don't have the same concept of going to regular checkups and coming in for their surgeries and the importance of post-operative care. Now, they've got rates three times higher. And unfortunately, the, the real big problem in the Indigenous population is diabetes and the impact of diabetes on the eye. Mm. And so diabetic diabetes can damage all organs of our body, but in particular, blindness and, and damage to the eye is critical in those mm. patients. And there is a lot, of, uh, a lot of funding and a lot of work, and there's a lot of wonderful eye professionals who go into Indigenous areas and into communities. I go up to Darwin uh, one week every year to do cornea transplants there, but we have even more you know, dedicated eye health professionals that go way into the outback and see these communities and really try and bring you know, modern medical treatments to those communities in their areas. So it is trying to be uh, addressed, 
but it does take time. It does take a lot of time. Con, laser eye surgery, we hear a lot mm. about it. What is it and uh, is it a good option for people? For most people, laser eye surgery is an option usually in your 20s to 40s. So it's, it's usually a treatment for the younger people. And we talked a bit about the cornea before. So just to remind people, the cornea is the front clear window of the eye. And what we do, we change the shape. So the laser acts a bit like a lathe, like a woodworking lathe to change the shape of the cornea Ah. to make it focus better. So we've got some wonderful technologies now that are able to change that shape, give better focus and provide people with better vision. And so that's usually in people 20 to 40, usually that they they want to get rid of glasses. And by getting rid of glasses, they don't need that uh, until they're in their 40s, 45. And is that a lifelong cure? Well, it, it does help until 45. Everyone after 45, Patricia, then need reading glasses. So mm. reading glasses, the big sort of bane of people, once they hit 45, they get the gorilla arms and they need to sort of hold things way out <laughs> and sort of, you know, and they say, okay, I need some reading yeah. glasses. So, so that's yeah. when you're 45, we can then Ugh. do laser again to help with reading. Mm. And then after 45, most patients, if they want to, if they start having visual troubles, it's cataract surgery that becomes the next most important uh, operation to fix mm. their vision. And what is that? What are, what are cataracts? Yeah, cataracts. It's a, so when, when you sort of look in the mirror and you look at your eye, you can see in the center there's a little black hole, which is the pupil. Just behind our pupil is the lens of the eye. The lens is about the size of a smarty and it needs to be clear. But as we get older, with all the sort of sun damage and aging damage that our eye has, that smarty gets foggier and foggier and it doesn't see as well. So because mm-hmm. it can't see as well, people start noticing that night driving is really difficult or reading books starts getting really uncomfortable. They can't see the print properly. And so if, that's, if people are experiencing troubles with night driving or reading, off to the optometrist or the eye specialist, They're told they've got cataract, and these days we've got wonderful surgery to be able to remove the Mm. smoky lens and put in a new plastic clear lens and get their vision back. And so that surgery is a you know wonderful now. It's the most common eye surgery that happens in Australia, and the results are wonderful these days. It sounds fantastic, and the science is just Mm. is just brilliant. Is there further to go? Have we discovered as much as we can do for eye health, or is there still a way to go, do you think? Look, there's always further. Even in my, I've been practicing for 20 years. The last 20 years has been an explosion of knowledge, of new treatments. The technology has been getting better, all the, the amazing equipment, and, and, and our staff and education has been getting better. So there's always new things. I mean, these days, the implants we're using, Lex, for cataract surgery, The implants are getting better, giving people multifocal vision, that is be able to see far and close and not need glasses. With macular degeneration, uh, we're able to get better medicines to stop the damage in people's eyes so they don't go blind. So as we said, we're getting new medicines, new ways of giving medicines. So these patients, instead of needing injections every month, hopefully they'll only need an injection every six months or once a year so that they, they can keep seeing and not need so many visits. Uh, and then in terms of glaucoma, we're getting wonderful new operations where we're putting tiny stents, so little titanium tubes in people's eyes so that Whoa. the pressure doesn't go high 
and better medicine so the pressure mm. doesn't keep high. So there's always new things, um, and it's very exciting. I must say, ophthalmology is the best specialty. It's, it's always changing, always improving. Many of us uh, donate money to guide dogs, and we also many of us also donate money to the Fred Hollows yes. Foundation. What's the particular operation that he has given you know joy to people? Yeah, so Fred, as people know, and, and, and Fred Hollows Organisation is, is one of you know really the premier charities in Australia. They do wonderful work both in Australia with the Indigenous population and research. They provide a lot of funds for research and overseas. So the operation that Fred really made uh, famous is cataract surgery, that is removing the lens of the eye and putting a new lens in. And what really, Fred, the two things that he, he always was hammering us as young doctors, one, you have to go out and treat the less fortunate in our community, mm. like the Indigenous people and people overseas. And the second thing is you got to make it affordable. So a lot of these treatments are very expensive. And mm. so he was very good at being able to design and make cheap but good quality lenses that you can put in the surgery and make it worthwhile for patients. Mm. So all these clinics that he did in sort of overseas Vietnam, and now we go to Vietnam, Myanmar, uh, and Indonesia, you, you use a cheaper implant. So in Australia, an implant would cost about three hundred to one thousand dollars. In those countries, that's unaffordable. You make one for five dollars, and that's why give wow. a fiver for a Fred comes from. A five dollar implant makes all the difference, and they still work, and they they leave wonderful vision for these patients. Yeah, so that's part of Fred's legacy. And what what role does Vision Australia play? Well, Vision Australia is a wonderful organisation that really helps. I mean, they've got so many roles, but I mean, from me as an eye specialist, when I have a patient come to me who is losing vision or is having difficulty with vision at their home, Vision Australia is a wonderful organization to contact. Then they can get in with families and the patients themselves and provide them supports in their home and to get all the sort of new uh, machines and new methods of seeing better. So, you know, they, they can give them screens to read things. They can give them uh, different furnishings, different lighting, different abilities to make their home environment suitable for someone who's actually losing vision. Mm. And um, they, they provide excellent support throughout Australia and, and, and they've got excellent health professionals. So as a good society, we really couldn't live without Vision Australia, could we? No, not at all. No. Honestly, Vision Australia for all these years and and, and, and the, the, the society works in the background to support patients and their carers and, mm. and, and they really link all the services together because it can get quite frightening. It's very difficult for someone who suddenly loses vision. How are you supposed to pay your bills? How are you supposed to mm. go and, and get a cab? How are you supposed to use transport? So all of those things you need someone with experience to sit down with you and unfortunately a lot of us as busy eye doctors or mm. other health professionals we don't have the time to really sit down with someone and walk them through that process whereas the the, the dedicated professionals there got excellent experience tell them okay let's get this form let's get these these services linked in with you and be able to keep giving you a rich wonderful life even though your vision's getting a little bit weaker now, I know this is radio and um, and our listeners can't uh, see our Zoom screens, but it does occur to me that uh, Patricia and myself and our producers, Jeff and Liz, 
We're all wearing glasses yes, and you're all. not. <laughs> no, I'm, not I'm still lucky. I can still see quite well. So, no laser um, treatment. No laser had... treatment yet, but oh. it might be an option for me soon. <laughs> uh, Dr. Con Petzoglu, we've been so lucky to have you with us today and we hope that you might find the time another time to come and join us and inform our anxious listeners, and that's us included. <laughs> but uh, many, many thanks for your company, for all of your information, It's and please continue all your great work. Now, thank you Indeed. so much, Patricia. Yeah, thank you, Lex. Talk. And I really hope it's been benefit and uh, hope people get their eye checks and we would love to see them anytime in the future. I'd love to come back. Can I say it's good to see you and look forward to seeing <laughs> you again. Yeah. <laughs> see you, Dr. Con. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. And now it's time to have a cuppa in Jeff's Cafe where people of different ages talk about the theme and interview of the day. And we've just been listening to that uh, excellent uh, conversation about eye health with Dr. Con Posterglu, uh, Dr. Con, we'll call him for short, uh, on eye health. Uh, and now we're going to talk about it with our guest here in Jeff's Cafe, Boomer Gary from Woi Boy. Lovely to see you again, Gary. Yeah, great to be back, Jeff. Thank you. Marty, who is actually uh, working with 2RPH, or which was formerly known as Radio Print Handicapped. We are actually still known as that. Yes, indeed. And and the thing is that it's for people with vision difficulties. So they use the radio because they're audio dependent or audio preferred. And joining us from the Sutherland Shire is Elise, who is Gen Y. And look, we actually have two Gen Ys because Marty's only just turned 31, but we're going to have an intergenerational conversation anyway. too old and too bald to pretend to be Gen Z. (laughs) (laughs) Well, look, I'm going to start with you, uh, please, Elise. It seems, according to Dr. Con, that, you know, we eat carrots, we eat colourful vegetables and oily food and we steer away from the screen and we can take good care of our eyes. But that... It's not really going to work in the long term. Eventually, vision is going to deteriorate. Uh, yes, that's right. And uh, in my case, I my vision started to go when I was about in year eight, around 15. I um, couldn't see the blackboard um, from far away, so I found that I had short-sightedness. Um, and actually, it's hereditary. So my dad had laser eye surgery for glaucoma. My nana had cataract surgery, and my mum has juvenile diabetes type one. So unfortunately, it wasn't looking good for me uh, in the gene pool. But yeah, I think I got glasses when I went to get my peas um, when I was seventeen. I couldn't read the um, the bottom line and. You know, that was devastating, so I missed out on, on my P's until I got fitted properly for glasses. So I was also reading that um, some side effects of psychiatric treatment medication um, that can actually cause low vision, short-sightedness. Uh, also, any psychotic medications can increase a person's risk of diabetes, leading to poor vision. And I guess it just impacts, you know, our everyday activities, you know, reading, watching TV, going out with friends, um, you feel isolated, you can start to depend on other people if you can't see properly, and this can lead to depression and anxiety as well. So it's really good to um, nip it in the bud, and as Dr. Con was talking about, um, you know, have it seen to 
Lucky, the good news is most can be controlled by medicines and surgeries. So, yeah, I was excited to hear, you know, the, the developments in, in technology, which is great. Uh, I'm going to jump in there because that was probably one of my biggest takeaways from this. Uh, and you could tell he was very excited about not just the technology advancements now, but it sounds like the sort of field or area where technology uh, advancements are sort of always happening, have always been happening. And I believe, you know, as evidence of that, that talk about the first uh, eye transplant happening in, was it 1905? You know, we were all, we all would have been very surprised hearing that. So this is a field that's been around for a very long time. Yeah. And yeah, I, I got to say, Dr. Con's a great communicator, isn't he? I mean, I, I, I just learned so much in that 20 minutes. Yeah. Clearly, someone's very passionate about it. Yeah, he's very passionate about it. He's very sort of clear and concise. And um, you know, for for me, just the eye health piece, very simple messages, which quite and simply I hadn't heard before. So eating, you know, the right oils and that, and you know, the only twenty minutes on a screen. Uh, I wish I would have known that ages ago after spending you know fifty years yeah. looking at a screen. <laughs> so um, <laughs> yeah, I, I thought he, it was a great. Great um, presentation by uh, Dr. Con, and I certainly learnt learnt a lot. I was particularly surprised by the reference to olive oil being good for your vision because I love olive oil; it's my favourite one. But I always assumed it was going to be bad for me, and maybe it is in some other ways. But the fact that it's good for my eye health, I think, is very reassuring. Oh yeah, and I, look, I love anchovies. You know, anchovies for breakfast, um, <laughs> and I think I'm going to add carrots yeah. to it as well yeah. for breakfast. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Any kind of oily fish like salmon, um, anchovies, yeah, the um, olive oil, they're all really, really important. And I guess we do take our, our eyesight for granted, don't we? Um, and when it starts to go, it's kind of like a case of you don't know what you've got until it's gone. Um, but I just thought it was really moving um, when he said a children's author donated um, her eyes, her corneas to a child who will now be able to read the books that the author wrote. So I just thought that was a wonderful yeah. synchronicity and also positive dharma and karma that, you know, happens when you're a donor. Oh, yeah. Got to admit I cried with that one. Yeah, a couple of tears there. I know. It's so moving and beautiful. And I think to give, you know, a lot of other people's sight, you know, uh, the Fred Hollows idea and the work done there where you can give sight for $5. I mean, that that is, you know, fantastic that the guys have been able to work on that and be able to deliver that in that way. So, you know, tremendously um, positive sort of presentation yeah. by, you know, yeah. Dr. Con. yeah. That was an interesting aspect of the Fred Hollows Foundation that I wasn't aware of necessarily that, Part of the reason why they're so successful, able to do what they do, is because what they manufacture can actually be done uh, very affordably. So sometimes the barrier to treatment, in fact, very often the barrier to treatment uh, with medical things is money, and people may not have the money for it. And so being able to make these things more affordable was able to help, so and still is able to help so many people. I think it's like amazing how accessible the treatment is now, you know, for other communities, uh, especially more vulnerable and, and poorer communities. Um, and he was talking about Indigenous eye health, how they have three times the rate of blindness, um, you know, oh, particularly with diabetes, yeah, and the impact on the eye. So it's amazing that that 
but treatment is so affordable for people. Yeah, yeah, it makes all the difference. And we are very lucky uh, in Australia. I mean, obviously, yes, people do still deal with a lot of expenses associated with these things. But, you know, compared to a lot of other countries, we do pretty well, I think, here at least. And so, you know, we can be pretty grateful for that. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not absolutely sure, but I think Medicare um, is a Medicare benefit for people to go to see the optometrist every every year. Um, yeah. So it's not, there's, there's not a cost barrier to seeing an optometrist in the first, you know, in the first instance, um, which I think is, as Dr. Conn said, it's pretty important, you know, once a year, uh, just roll up and get your, get your eyes checked. Um, and, you know, prevention is way better than, than cure. Yeah, that's very true. Yeah, that's right. And there's also um, there's also affordable glasses um, for people um, from low socioeconomic backgrounds, and also people on pensions. And um, you know, there's I think there's um, yeah government subsidies for glasses as well. So that's really good. Um, just the laser eye surgery, though, I think you have to be over a certain age to um, get it on Medicare, but I think I was looking it up, and it's about two to three grand per eye. Wow! Yeah, yeah, I I, I can believe it. It's a lot. I can. No, this seems like a lot, doesn't yeah. it? Jeff, would you like to tell us about being colorblind? Is this related to eye health? As far as my eyes go, in my family, my eyes are my vision is the best of all of us. The yeah. only thing is, I happen to be colorblind, but that just means I see things differently. Doesn't mean my life isn't really rich and vivid. Yeah. Um, yeah, and uh, and Jeff, you might know the figure, but I think twenty five percent of males are colorblind. Yep, something, and and I've got plain old red green colour blindness, and yep. all, all all it means is that I don't trust my fashion sense. <laughs> hey, you're doing just fine, Jeff. It's all good. No one would come to the cafe if you weren't dressed, you know, <laughs> cool or anything. And I can see that my guests today in Jeff's Cafe, well, the cups are nearly empty. I want to thank you very much for joining us today for our chat in Jeff's Cafe on eye health with Dr. Con Postoglu. Thank you very much once again, Gary from Woiwoi. Yep, thanks, Jeff. Thanks so much, Marty from Glebe. Thank you for having me, Jeff. And thank you once again, Elise from the Shire. Lovely. Thanks, everyone. Thanks for having me, Jeff. And we'll see you all again soon. Bye-bye. And now it's time for Nostalgia Town, where we speak with well-known older Australians about the journey they took that makes them the person they are today. We have a real treasure with us today, taking us to Nostalgia Town. He is the Reverend Bill Cruz AM. We all know he's a much-loved Australian who has spent his entire adult life in the service of others. He is a passionate supporter of the homeless and the needy. He's never afraid to speak out against injustice. He expresses views that don't always align with his church, such as supporting gay marriage and voluntary assisted dying. In his book, 12 Rules for Living a Better Life, published last year, Bill talks about experiences that have shaped his life as a Uniting Church minister and his friendship with His Holiness, the 14th Dalai Lama. A big welcome, Bill. It's lovely to have you with us. Thank you. It's an honour to be here. Would you be able to tell us at least some of those 12 rules? Oh, gosh. <laughs> well, one will do, two will do. The difference between empathy and sympathy. 
Ah. Because we get really caught up with that particularly, that um, if you break your arm and your friend says, oh, I broke my arm and it's so painful, it's all about the friend. Mm. If the person says, oh, you're in such pain, it's the emphasis is on the person with the broken arm mm. and the person with the broken arm actually feels listened to and heard and the mm. story isn't taken and added to the other person's story, if you get what I mean. And I find it's being listened to that's healing. Yes, good listening's not always a big part of our everyday lives, is it? People no. uh, need to talk about themselves so much more nowadays, I feel, than they used to. Would this? Oh, Why? It just is. So it mm. was funny the other day because I was talking to this street person, you know, and he was telling me all about his bad life and all of this, you know, and then he looks at me. And he says, how's your life, Bill? And I was having a bad day, a really bad day, you know. And hmm. so I told him and he looked at me and he goes, oh, shit happens. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought, I've been listening to you, you bugger, all this time, <laughs> doing all the empathy and I open up <laughs> and I get that back. And, uh, and I often like that, you know. <laughs> Serves him right, he asked yeah, the question. Right. Yeah. So, so that that's one. And always try and put yourself in the other person's shoes. That's mm. really important mm. because then we can get along together, you know. Um, I, I, in the book I talk a lot about actually really listening. One of the things older people on their deathbed regret is all the loving things they haven't said to the people they love. Mm. So I've been encouraging people to say it now. Say it now. And there's the street guy I know, like the other one, you know, who I really love. And one day we were talking away and, and I said, you know, I really love you, Dwayne. And he goes, oh. <laughs> and we then started really talking mm. so that, um, often it's a risk in saying, look, I love you, but more often than not, the risk pays off. Mm -hmm. And I've tried to try to make this thing that if I'm with someone, I think, what do I not want to go to my deathbed not having said and say it? And it kind of breaks all those barriers, you know? I think we're sort of stuck with that stiff upper lip English thing, aren't we, that uh, Very. it's not a good way to be. No. Let's go back a bit. Where did you grow up? Uh, I grew up really in St Mary's in Western Sydney, really. My parents, I came over from England when I was three. So, um, and my father came over and started a frozen chicken business like the Inghams. They were all starting at that time to export frozen chickens to England. But the business didn't go like Ingham's did. <laughs> and he ended up going broke. But I ended up living out the back of, of St Mary's, Western Sydney. And with all the refugee people, all the, the people from World War Two. So there were, there were German kids, there were all the Eastern European kids, Italian, Greek. It was just a whole blamange. <laughs> smorgasbord of nationalities and I just loved it I just loved it and we would go wandering through the bush and all of that sort of stuff 
Like to my regret today, stealing birds' eggs, we climbed the trees and pinch all the eggs, <laughs> have contributed to the fall off in the number of birds in Australia. <laughs> but it was just wonderful. I was really happy there. And then my father had to move and we had to move and it broke my heart. But that's mm. where we live. Most of the kids didn't have a cent to their name or a penny to their name mm. and had bare feet and all of that sort of stuff, lived in hesh and humpies in the bush. And it was lovely. They were happy. They didn't know that yeah. in this day and age they'd certainly be called disadvantaged. They were no, living their lives with smiles on their faces. Yeah. Yes. Did you um, go straight from school into the church? No, I, I, it was a long process. I, um, Well, I went to university. I studied electrical engineering and ended up with at AWA Microelectronics studying the properties of single crystal silicon. So. Um, no, and and I was doing all that, and I didn't think I was the best research scientist in the world and was looking around and ended up at the domain, listening to the speakers like John Webster and all mm. of that. And then he happened to mention he was speaking at the Wayside Chapel in King's Cross, and I went up there to listen to him, and it changed my life. Mm. Going into the King's Cross changed my life, and it was through a process like that. That, that changed my life. How old were you when that change occurred? 26. So I'd lived a fair bit of life before mm. then. <laughs> what were the cultural influences, Bill, when you were growing up? What, did you go to the movies, TV, rock yeah, and roll? Lots. Yes. I still really like going to the movies, you know. The, at St Mary's on a Saturday afternoon, all the kids would get together and go to the Crown Cinema. And we would watch whatever movie was on. I remember Calamity Jane and all those 1950s movies. And we'd do all the things like roll the jappers down the aisle, <laughs> all of that sort of stuff. It was, I've had a, a love of, um, of that for the, all my life. What about music? My mum loved Frank Sinatra. I remember him coming to Australia and She's saying to my dad she'd like to go, and my dad said, you're not going to that, you know. <laughs> All of that sort of stuff. <laughs> but I, I was, um, the radio was a big friend, you know. There was, the ABC had that, what was it called, the Argonauts Club, and, mm. and then there were all the serials on on 2GB and 2UE, I think it was. Used to listen to all of those sorts of things, mm. just part of all of that. Yeah, I think many of us, many baby boomers listening can relate to all that. They would have grown up with uh, the women wanting to see Frank and their partners going, you can't see him, as you know, you know you can't see him. <laughs> they managed to get there to see Frank and uh, they did. Uh, they were terrific times. I remember my mum wanting to see Frank and she did. Um, yeah. Yeah. Well, mine didn't. Yeah. <laughs> uh, these days, look, I've been to your place, as you know, and, and love it, and I'm in awe of the amount of work that is done by you and your fantastic team every single day of the year. It's just mind-blowing, and I don't think Australia could ever thank you enough for that. Thank you. Is there any spare time? What do you do about your social world, or is that your social world? Basically, I like what I do. Mm. And being a minister, you get caught up in a whole lot of stuff. You know, mm. you can, you can, so everything I get involved in ends up ending up some way or other in a kind of a sermon mm. and my friends and my movies and I just like my life. That's I just great. see it 
way I can say it that um, even after if I retired, I'd be doing this stuff. I, I can't see myself getting in a camper van and driving around Australia, you mm. know. Mm. But it, it would be nice, but no. You're fulfilled this way, and aren't we happy that you are? What happens, though, is I've learned basically to say yes to everything that happened, everything. So mm. usually a lot of things you say yes to drop away, and you end up doing the most interesting things that you'd have never done had you not said yes to something. Mm. So, you know, and I find I travel along the way. like you. You might get invited somewhere to speak, so you go and you you visit. You do all this stuff anyway, you know, but it's mm. on the way. <laughs> mm. Bill, your ministry has been distinguished by your, in a sense, it seemed at the time, unconventional approach to religion. The idea that religion wasn't something that just happened in a building with steeples and sermons and robes, and it was a more common man ministry. Did that ever bring you into opposition with the church? Oh, a lot of times, a lot of times. It's, it's, it's being, being yourself, particularly in the church, is quite a lonely sort of place because, well, there are things that go on that are just plain wrong. <laughs> mm. So when you call it out, people get angry. And the church, in a way, is very intellectual. And most people are more emotive. So there are lots of conflicts, lots and lots of conflicts. We're supposed to be a forgiving place and we're not. And we become a place where the righteous feel justified. And they forget that Jesus always used to talk about it's the other way around. It's the other way around, you know. (laughs) Life is upside down. You know, if you feel yourself righteous, then you better watch yourself because you're probably on the wrong track. The Dalai Lama and your friendship is, I'm sure, very beautiful. Can you tell us a little bit about him that most people wouldn't know? I know he's quick to laugh and that's that's so lovely, but so are you. He comes across as, I suppose the one thing I've I've learned to watch people and he is himself no matter where. Most of us adapt our personality to the surroundings, you know? Yep. He allows the surroundings to adapt to him. <laughs> if you get what I mean. Sure so do. You always get the genuine issue. Mm-hmm. And he's very, very, very deep. I can't tell you how much I love him. We were sitting one day chatting and I said, um, take off your glasses and took off his glasses and um, we stared in each other's eyes and I said, did you notice you disappeared as we stared? And he goes, yes. And I said, oh, that's what I think Jesus was talking about, about the kingdom of God. And he goes, <laughs> and he, there was just him and me and a lackey and he summoned his lackey and he went off and he got this obelisk, this crystal obelisk, and he drew on it a black cross with a felt pen, and he said to me, he gave it to me, and he said, take this as a gift from the Holy Spirit. And it was just moving, really moving. Mm. So there's something very, very special. Is that cross um, that he gave you, is that in a special place? Yeah, it's it's in my room here just behind me. Good, okay. I, I, 
stare at it a lot. <laughs> mm, I bet you do. Bill, do you, you're always such a, a, a positive, optimistic person, but don't you have moments of doubt and despair? Oh, and, yeah. And wonder why, why religion well, seems to not be able to solve the problems of the world? Um, I was thinking about this the other day and I buried a little baby. It was basically stillborn. And we had a funeral and they basically brought the baby out in a little casket, which was like a shoebox. And it was so tiny and vulnerable and breaks your heart, you know. And I went, I do a lot of meditating and I went back and I realized that had happened throughout time. There were, there were mothers crying for tiny babies and parents burying their children and people torturing one another. And yet what I've noticed is that's when you feel most loving. I found this with a couple who their baby had died and she and him were just broken. And in their brokenness, all they were talking about was the people they loved and who loved them. Mm. And I kind of thought, how in this most despairing time in your life can you be talking about love? Mm. And it was like looking right through her eyes, right into her very soul, and you saw this tiny candle flame that was flickering and it had almost been blown out, but it hadn't. And I think Ted Noss used to say, the, one of my the ministers who mentored me a lot, he used to say, if you want to find God, you find it in the hells of the world, not in all the religious places. Mm. And it's true, in the hells of life. If you mm. want to find love, if you want to find love that stands out, you find it in the hells of life. Bill, we know your busy life is uh, just goes on and on and it's great. What about something different? Do you have some fun in your life that you might do have on a regular basis? I, there, are, there are things I love doing. Um, I love going on that the, fa- the ferry to Manly. I love that, you know. I've got a friend who's... He was a Buddhist monk. He was a Buddhist abbot, you know, mm. and he decided he was missing out on the finer things of life like like um, alcohol and sex too much. <laughs> so he dropped out of that. And he and I wander the back streets of Bangkok a lot and he talks Buddhist stuff and I talk Christian stuff or whatever. Mm. And it's just lovely, just mm. lovely, you know. I love the train trip from London to Edinburgh where you go all through the sea. I love being out in um, central Australia. There's uh, lots of things, lots of things. Mm-hmm. Oh, it's nice. And social friends, um, no doubt you have many, many friends, but we all seem to end up with just a handful of close great mates. Is that yeah. the case? Yeah, mm. lots of people want to be my friend for a reason. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, you'd have that trouble, Patty. You know uh, yeah. That. You know, you never quite know. You that's know. right. That's exactly right. And um, <laughs> But we we try it all like each other and love love the yeah. handful. <laughs> yeah. That suits us fine. Mm. And you have a lovely family, of course, and a grandchild. Yeah. 
on his or her way. A little one, another one on the way. Uh, yes. Another one. Uh, good on you. Yeah. In all your your travels, is there one special place you can think of where you felt the spirit of Christianity more than anywhere else? On the streets of King's Cross in the 70s with the homeless mm. and runaway kids, definitely. And believe it or not, Bangkok Railway Station. <laughs> mm. Bangkok Railway Station is where all the homeless kids from all over Southeast Asia gather. <laughs> mm. And it's a human jungle. It is just amazing. And you get Buddhists, Muslims, you name it. And everybody somehow, because they're all in between train journeys, <laughs> cope with each other. And mm. it's an amazing place to be, mm. amazing place. It's and, and also in a lot of the refugee camps, that's where you find it. Mm. That's where you find it. Bill, it's almost time for us to say bye-bye, but yeah. you told us about two of your the 12 rules. Come on, can you t- give us another one, please? The amazing healing effect of time. Lots of things happen right now and you think, oh, my gosh. But if you step back, meditate, take time, often the problems solve themselves. <laughs> That's true, but you need to be old ducks like us to realise that, don't oh, you? <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. I often think, gosh, I wish I had this knowledge when I was younger, you know. Mm. But the main one is meditate. Meditate. Yeah. Very meditate. interesting. Okay. And, of course, we would encourage our listeners to uh, – Buy a copy of the book, 12 Rules for a Better Life, the Reverend Bill Cruz. And we thank you so much, Reverend Bill Cruz. It's lovely to have had you with us. Thanks, Bill. Bill, thank you so much for spending time with us and thank you for uh, being such an inspiration for so many people for so many years and uh, may you live forever. And we love you. Thank you. And I love you. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. And now it's time for Money Extra, where an expert on a particular finance topic gives us a brief life lesson on money. Hi, I'm Rachel Waterhouse from the Australian Shareholders Association, and it's a great pleasure to be talking today in the Money Extra segment of the Baby Boomers Guide podcast. I would like to talk to you today about how to develop or review your investment plan. An investment plan gives you a clear idea of where you are headed and how you're going to get there. So why not look back at what has worked for you and what hasn't and develop strategies to build, create and protect your financial well-being. When developing or reviewing your financial plan, you may want to do the following. Set or review your financial goals. Ensure you have a budget in place and are spending less than you earn. This allows you to have savings to invest. Assess your superannuation situation regardless of your stage in life. This may include reviewing the performance of your superannuation fund. Get started investing or review your investment portfolio. I focus on investing in great companies with strong management teams that have a good strategy and could perform well in the long term. Have estate planning and taxation affairs in place. You may want to seek external financial advice. Understand your own risk tolerance and only invest in assets and companies you understand. 
You can find more information about investing through the government's Money Smart website, the ASX website, and the Australian Shareholders Association website, where you can sign up for the weekly email. And now it's time for Stepping Out, where we speak with older people from around Australia, showcasing their communities and community radio stations, and telling us why you might want to visit sometime. And today we're going to step out with Vicky Cousins, who's from 5RPH Radio Station, and in Adelaide. Hello, Vicky. Hi. Hi, Vicky. How are you going? I'm good, thank you. Very pleased to be with you. And just some information about Vicky. The Radio 5 RPH is a part of the Vision Australia radio network. Vicky lost her sight as an infant, but her blindness hasn't stopped her from contributing to the station's reading service. Vicky was the first person in the Vision Australia network to use Braille to read and present. In her weekly Saturday program, Vicky reads Australian Geographic magazine and each week she attends the station with her beautiful black Labrador guide dog, Bella. Hello, Vicky. Vicky, how long have you been working in radio? How long have you been at RPH? Uh, I've been with them for three years now and I really enjoy it. Mm. And what were you doing prior to that? Uh, well, I was working full-time as a community officer, you know, helping elderly people, you know, with their lives and to let them uh, have a volunteer and a pet come to visit them in their own home, you know, usually a dog, and that yeah. just brings them a bit of happiness. So I was mm. doing that for uh, about 15 years, and then I gave that up, and I love reading out loud, and I thought, I wonder if I could offer my services to RPH. Can you tell us a little bit about RPH? So it stands for Radio for the Print Handicapped. Yeah. How does it, how do the RPH, and there's a network around Australia, every every capital city and some regional centres. How does the RPH work? Why is it different from other radio stations? It's actually uh, part of, it's called now Vision Australia Adelaide Radio Station, but it's a part of the bigger network. And what it mainly does, which other stations don't, normal stations don't do, it lets people that cannot read for whatever disability they've got, our station will read the Adelaide Advertiser, the Australian, all those different sorts of papers and magazines, and like Australian Geographic, that people may not be able to access themselves. And you mentioned Australian Geographic, National Geographic. That's a particular interest of yours? Yeah, this one is the Australian Geographic. It's all about Australia, whether it's animals, plants, places. Each magazine has a different place and tells you about the history of it. And it it just suits me down to the earth because I am a really strong believer in looking after our animals, mm-hmm. and I'm an animal lover, of course. And Vicky, how how easy is it to find magazines that are published in Braille? Uh, they're not very easy. In Queensland, they produce one called Mindful Food. They do produce the Australian Women's Weekly and also the Australian Geographic, but unfortunately, they're not the current issue. When, the, like, say, the June issue comes out, we get the Braille-May issue. So, unfortunately, it's behind. Mm-hmm. But other than that, the Braille magazines come from England or America. Vicky, 
you worked in a Braille library in your first job and you've had other interesting jobs, Vicky. Uh, tell us about some of those. Yeah, I worked as um, a Braille library officer, I guess, for, oh, goodness me, um, 18 years, um, issuing and returning of Braille books and proofreading, which I then went on to print alternative section um, where we printed student books for tertiary education into Braille and large print. And it was my job as well as transcribing to proofread. And I absolutely love that because I'm a really big reader. So Mm. anything I can get my hands on, I love. I bet they're very, very grateful for you. I know that you also work at the moment in a telephone service helping the elderly. What does that involve? Yeah, I've just started that and I really love it. Um, mm. I, I must say I did do it years ago for another agency. Um, but this one, you ring up the people each morning and just see how they are. Um, do they need anything? Um you know, how their day's going. And I actually, we're only supposed to have about five minutes at the most with them if they want to talk that long. But I did say to the people that run it that they'll probably have to get me off the phone because once I start talking to them, I just love finding out about them. (laughs) Oh, an inquisitive person. How lovely. But they must be, as I said, they must be so grateful for someone like you who has your little troubles, that um, you're able to help them and understand how they feel. That's great. Yeah, I try to just be a sister or something to them. You know, like I had one darling the other day who was going to turn 91 and she was having a little party down at the local church hall. So I make a note of that so I can ask her next week how it was, which I did. Mm-hmm. and. She was thrilled that someone remembered. So that's all mm. it takes to show them a bit of care. And Vicky, you, you spend so much time uh, for other people. Do you have enough time for yourself? <laughs> yes, yeah. Um, my husband and I love getting out, looking at well, a lot of secondhand shops, furniture shops. Also like going to the movies, you know, and I love the football. Do you? Are you a Crows supporter or Port? Crows, absolutely. Yeah, okay, Crows, okay. <laughs> <laughs> it's important for you to maintain your social connections? Oh, absolutely, yeah. I'm a person, I can stay home oh, maybe two days if I have to but I've got to get out after that. I just can't be home on my own. So, Mm-mm. Does Bella go everywhere with you? Yes, she does. I can't think of one place she doesn't. She comes to the station with me, and as soon as we go into the studio, she lays down. And when I start to finish the program, I'll say, um, that completes our program for this week. She gets up and puts <gasps> her head on my knee. No, <laughs> get out. Every oh. week. <laughs> She'll be able to do the show herself. <laughs> how long, how long, Vicky, have you had Bella? I've had her for five years. She's just turned seven now. Oh, so beautiful. she's she's going to be with you quite a while longer, isn't she? Their, oh, their yes. working life is considerable. Yeah, my yep. word. Yeah. And uh, I've, I've, I've had four guide dogs. But the memory on Bella is incredible. Um, like when we started at, you know, this telephone um, 
latest place, um, I got the first week someone to walk in front of her to show her where to go. The mm-hmm. second week, she did it herself. So, no. uh, <laughs> she's great. Bella. Yeah. Absolutely. You can teach my dog a thing or two. Thanks so much for talking to us. It's, uh, it's been great. And good luck with the broadcasting. That Thank you, you very, on, very uh, much. Vision Australia Radio in, in Adelaide. And uh, thanks for talking to us and being part of Baby Boomer's Guide. That's been an absolute pleasure. You're all hard work. Thank you. Thank you. Well, Patricia, that's the end of another program. However, next week we'll be uh, talking to elder law specialist Rodney Lewis on the topic, What I Pay for Aged Care. Ah, that'll be convoluted and interesting. Nostalgia Town will be good too because we'll be speaking with Ian Fraser AC, a Scottish-born Australian immunologist. Founding CEO and Director of Research at the Translational Research Centre. He's a famous immunologist. And in stepping out, we head to Canberra to talk with an old mate, Heinrich Stefanik of CMS FM 91.1 about multicultural radio in Australia and Heinrich has been a stalwart of community radio for many years. He's a very passionate uh, presenter, fantastic. In Money Extra, we talk with Professor Michael Sherris of the University of New South Wales Business School about the soaring cost of insurance and what you can do to save on premiums. Another jam-packed program, Patricia. Certainly will be. Looking forward to it. See you next week. Ta-da. Take care. Bye. Baby Boomer's Guide to Life is produced on the Gadigal and Wongal lands of the Eora Nation in association with the Older Women's Network. Baby Boomer's Guide is funded by the Extra Foundation, which works to ensure that more Australians are confident making money decisions today and into the future. You can find out more by going to extra.org.au. That's E-C-S-T-R-A dot org dot A-U. And don't forget, if you've missed any episodes, catch up on your favourite podcast app and online at babyboomersguide.com.au. Plus, you can join the conversation and have your say on our Baby Boomers Guide to Life Facebook page. Your Baby Boomers Guide to Life hosts are Senior Influencers of the Year, Patricia Little Putty Amphlet and me, Big Lex Marinos. Get Get connected connected and stay stay connected. connected.